start a series today, which is, I'm going to let you come up and get mine too, son. No, you don't need to duck. It's all right. <laughs> so, unless you're bowing out of reverence, I, then fair enough. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> oh, and about time too. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> what? Wow. Anyway, um, my favorite thing to do is I travel around the country. When people ask, what would you like to talk about? It's always the same. You know, I'll first do the polite, well, what do you feel you need in your area? But if they say, well, what, what do you got? It, I just want to talk about Jesus. Just want to tell Jesus stories. That's really what I've done a lot of. Some of you know that I did it at a church here for about two years. But we never were able to get that many people in the class interested in it. And that always bothered me. But we moved on. And everywhere else I would go, you'd kind of pack the house. Whether it was with Muslims or with Christians or with um, uh, federal agents. They all wanted to know more about Jesus when they started hearing the stories. And he was no longer a cartoon or an illustration of how we're to have faith. Or an illustration of something Paul wanted to say. They, he always seemed to be in the shadows and in the corners, and they would bring him out like at vacation Bible school to tell some stories. But then he'd go away, kind of like clapping Kool-Aid and fun, until the next summer. And, and it, was, it was always, I always wanted to know a little bit more, but it was when I went through my own personal struggle with faith, and I read the Gospels over and over for six months, did it quietly, and it transformed everything. Jesus even said that if you learn, the, the sheep should learn the voice of the shepherd. And once you listen and you hear his voice, you can tell his voice and when he's not speaking as well as when he is. So we're going to do it here. And I, for the people in Texarkana where I just was, this, it's an amazing church there, the Walnut Church of Christ. And their leadership is just stellar, the minister and the elders. And they said, just come tell Jesus stories. And then after I would tell Jesus stories, I'd do questions and answers. And I knew that I was going into territory that they'd not gone into before. But they, they took it with grace, love, not a word of complaint. So now you have a, a reason to complain. Because I did the first six of these Jesus stories to them last week. So if they're tuned in now, you got to hear some really cool music. Um, Spartans held the pass long enough to let the Greeks have victory. It's a hinge point and a very well-known one. Another one would be the Gutenberg um, press, movable type, so that you could produce a Bible, you could produce books, you could produce um, brochures, but they would, they would call them leaflets and tracts. 
that you would send out now. And all of a sudden, a primitive internet, you know, you were able to read things. You were actual written words, a hinge point. Or Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the wall. But there's something about all of these, and you might not have noticed it at first. These are hinge points of history for Europe and for us. But none of these were hinge points for the people in Africa, Asia, Southeast Asia, the aboriginals down in New Zealand and Australia, none of them. And we often think of history in a very localized idea that it's about us. What about hinge points that affected everybody? Of course, creation and the fall, advent, the coming of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, these are hinge points that changed everything for everybody, no matter where you live. But there's another hinge point that we never talk about, and we really need to talk about it. Because Roman just read it to you. Imagine many of us did not quite get the, the it's, it's a thud. It is an amazing stomp opening the kicking open a door and slamming other doors by the hand and the voice of God himself and yet we tend to pass over it when I was a boy I even asked once I said but what was the transfiguration for and there was to show the glory of God and in my head it was like we know the glory of God what else was it for and I never quite understood it until those six months what's going on here there are changes when you read the Bible through Jesus. The story, in, in short, is this. Jesus takes his favorite friends up the mountain. By the way, you're allowed to have favorite friends. He had favorite friends, and he took them up the mountain. Now, as Jesus is praying, all of a sudden, in the sky, show up Moses and Elijah. These are the biggest heroes anybody had in Judaism. Moses was the lawgiver, the great liberator. Everybody wanted to be like Moses. And in fact, the book of Matthew, where we are, all, all through Matthew, he parallels Jesus and Moses. And once you know that and look for it, you'll see it everywhere you look. He wants to make sure we understand Jesus is the new Moses. But then there's Elijah. Elijah was a John Wayne of the prophets. You know, some of the prophets went out there and cried about how terrible everything was, ripped their clothes, sat in ashes, and moved on. Elijah killed people. You know, he did Mount Carmel. He did all this other. He, he did dramatic things like praying for rain and looking up and seeing a cloud the size of a man's hand turning to a servant. He goes, run. I mean, he's dramatic. He's big. Interesting thing, though, Elijah's ministry had zero effect. Zero. And yet, he's our cowboy. He's the one we like. Moses didn't even get to enter the promised land. But it doesn't matter. These men are blown away. Now, we already know one miracle's taken place. They've shown up. Two is that the people recognize them. Because the Jews were not allowed to make pictures. They were not allowed to make graven images. Or make any drawing of any living thing. So nobody had ever tried to do an approximation of what Moses looked like or Elijah. And these are hundreds and hundreds of years in the past. Nobody had ever described them. <laughs> we, can't, we can't 
do a painting, but he's five foot six. We couldn't do that. So now they know who they are. And Peter, he's my favorite. Uh, my favorite writer would be John, but I like Peter. And he leaps up and he goes, we need to put three booths or three tents out here. And, and we lose that, don't we? We don't really know what's going on there. It was near a holy day for the Jews where you would put up booths. And they, these were areas of sacrifice and worship. All right. It was a big deal. All capitals underlined it. And Peter's saying, we need to put up booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Now, when we see this, we're thinking, wait, Jesus is greater than. Peter wasn't trying to demote Jesus. He was trying to promote Jesus. Because in Peter's life, nobody would ever be bigger than Moses and Elijah. He's telling Jesus, we think that highly of you. We want to bring you up to here. And God kicks a door open. Some hinges are falling off now because he's going to hook that, he's going to hang the door in a whole different way. He said, this is my son. And you listen to him. The law and the prophets are right there. Now you listen to him. And as Roman read, they fell down on their faces, which is an appropriate response to what they just went through. Jesus then touches them and says, don't be afraid, which was the most often given command by Jesus. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, did you see the line? When they looked up, they saw only Jesus. Now they're ready. Now they're ready. In my growing up years, you Jesus story about love and acceptance and grace, and that was wonderful. Then you'd go to a Paul story where he was going to trump Jesus on this, and that only applies to some people. Now, that's a misreading of Paul, frankly. Paul wasn't like that, but we read him like that because we think like that. We're still going around munching on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, acting as if we get to choose what's right and what's wrong, when that's up to me. For example... The people heard, and they were pretty sure that this is all what God wanted, go into Jericho, wipe out the entire town, kill every living thing, including the children, all, everything. So they send spies in to see how to do this. Next scene, the spies are in a prostitute's house. I have, and by the way, I'm using that term because that's a biblical term. I'm aware we use the term sex worker now for a variety of reasons, and, and I, I appreciate the reasons. They're in a house. This is a madam. I don't, I would love to have seen that decision tree, but that's none of that's offered to us. And the spies look at her and say, if you lie, God will bless you. She does. And he does. This is why that never made it to VBS. That story never made it with the grape Kool-Aid. <clears throat> Although they would have given you extra saying, you're really going to need these for what you're about to hear. There's some, there's some Dramamine in some of them. It'll help you. Uh, and by the way, I'm opposed to Dramamine and cookies. I just, all right. For, well, for, no, I'm just going to leave it there. Um, yeah, it's, it's very important. It's very hard though. I don't have a lot of verbal breakage. Um, they didn't kill her. But they... They, act, they said that was a rule. 
But they saved her and her family, and they brought her, but they made her stay outside the camp because she was Gentile, and she was unclean because of her business. But the next time we see her name, she's in the camp, married to a Jewish man, Salomona. Then we don't hear from her again until Matthew 1, and she's one of Jesus' grandmamas. You see a movement there. It's like this is, they're saying, this is what God wants. And you see a little movement going, Jesus going to, no, let's bring her in. Let's bring her in. Let's love on her. Let's put her in. But we see this not only with her. Um, it, Ezra is one of the hardest books for me to read. Ezra returns from Persia. He's been in captivity. And he wants to purify the people. And Ezra goes on a long thing saying, if you married somebody that was not a Jew and you have children with them, you must send them out into the desert. God requires that you break up your family and throw them out to the mercies of the desert. And they do. And then you get Amos, who says, no, you don't. Same Bible. It's wrong, it's sinful. God loves them. And then Amos gets a buddy, a backup, who he never met, a priest. God says, I need you to do something. I need you to marry that sex worker over there. And for a priest, that meant you're out of a job. It ended it. There's no discussion. But God said, so he, then, then they have three kids. However, he's not convinced any of them are his. So he even names them. Not my kid. I don't know you. I'm not related. And seriously, he does. Then we find the marriage is broken up. And the next time we see Gomer, which is her name. It was a girl's name back then. She was standing in an auction block for slavery at the lowest price you could buy a slave lowest valuation ever and God comes to Hosea and says woo her back he didn't say buy her and make her live he said no you make her want to be with you you love her enough to draw her home and then I need you to change these kids names this one's mine I like this one and that's my relative or whatever how you have to do it it's so in other words, Ezra goes, ah, this is what God wants. But you see Jesus in there going, let's bring love into this. And for those of you that are, that are wait, maybe watching this and going, well, wait, you're acting like Ezra and Amos contradict each other. They do. And it's time we were honest about it rather than not being honest and losing our children when they read the story. The Old Testament is an argument about God. Jesus comes to settle the argument. Think of slavery. Here are the rules for slavery. Now, and I'm going to have to do some Monday morning messages about this. Their slavery among the Jews was not the slavery among others, but that doesn't make it good. There was one good aspect of it in that if a person was, in, they had no way of making money, they had no protection, they could go and put themselves out as a slave and the Jews had a rule about how you had to feed them, care for them. And, uh, but there, there were also rules about beating. And I can't make that pretty. 
But what happens is God moves the next set of rules. In fact, one book in the, in the Pentateuch, has, Pentateuch has two different sets of rules. This one, and a little easier. And then a little easier. A little easier. And then you get to Paul. And he writes a little letter to a guy named Philemon. And he said, I've got your runaway slave here, Onesimus. But you need to know something. He's not your runaway slave. He's your brother in Christ. And I'm going to send him back. But you have to treat him as a brother and not a slave. You may not punish him. If he incurred any debts while he was out, just let me know. I'll pay for them. By the way, that was Paul playing the apostle card. There's no way. There's no way Philemon's going to go, you owe me 34. No, that's an apostle. Don't do that. But Paul was just letting him know it with authority. We don't do slaves. We do brothers. We do sisters. Everything has changed. Now, does that mean Paul is saying the Old Testament's full of horrible things? No, what we're saying is people were wrestling with God, dancing with God, learning about God, and then Jesus came to show us God. I had one of the questions they asked, how do you deal? How do, how do you deal with the Canaanite genocide? Because as you read through the Old Testament, there are times it says specifically, kill all the men, kill all the women, kill all the children, kill everything that breathes. I say, well, there are a couple of ways to deal with it. One, Semitic war talk is never reality. Semitic war talk has always been like this. If you remember the first Iraq war, there was a red-headed uh, Christian who was Saddam Hussein's spokesman. And he was standing there on a balcony, CNN camera, saying, it is all a lie. The Americans are not in our country. We are doing fine. And if you looked in the back, tanks were coming. Now, was he lying? Technically, yes, but that's the way Semitic war talk is. We haven't seen them. We were the mother of all battles, you know, the ending of all wars. They do that. It'd be like me walking in. Cammy goes, how did, the, how did it go? I baptized all of Texas, the end of all. And she's going, I guess it did all right, and they didn't stone him. That's really, that's really what it, that's war talk. Two, when you went to destroy a city, you talk like that, but you didn't do it. You only attack the military or the armed individuals. That's throughout all history. Three, there is no archaeological evidence that there ever was a genocide. And instead, we see pottery, we see writings, we see things growing up alongside and then interweaving in. It was a gradual movement. And in fact, if you read your Bibles carefully, it'll say, we went and we wiped out everything. Two chapters later, they're still there. It's war talk. We don't talk like that, or we usually don't. There are people, they'll, say, they'll look at Afghanistan today and say, we ought to just bomb it and make it a big glass parking lot. I'm hoping that's just war talk, because if that's what they really want to do, they're evil. Because there are people there. There are innocent people there. The only crime was they were born in the wrong country. And we have no right to act like that. But war talk is there. Now think about this. And it's hard for us. Until you look at, and I'm going to check my time, got some time. Have you ever looked at the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount? Which is also, oh, conveniently, in Matthew. Because Jesus does something there which is rather shocking. 
he doesn't go far. Chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it said to the people long, that it was said to the people long ago. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, it's, a, it's an Aramaic term, really hard to translate. It means you are not worth saving, is really what that means. In other words, you're still munching off that apple or whatever fruit it was. Is answerable to court. And whoever says you fool will be in danger of hell fire. Did you, know, did you hear what he... You've heard it said, and then he quoted the words of God given to Moses, and he goes, no, I say to you. Then, verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And he goes, but I tell you, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He goes, you've heard it said, in verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And he's saying, I say to you, don't mistreat your wife and drive her away. Then you've heard it said again. You notice how he keeps going. And every time, or five times here, he quotes the Old Testament. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, every time I bring this up, we have people leaping on horses to ride to God's rescue. I would submit he doesn't need your help. But they will ride and they'll say, no, no, Jesus wasn't... wasn't uh, making a new law there. He, he was just returning us to the heart of the law. No, I'm sorry. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is this brought you so far, but you need to know something. If you really want to know what God wants, this is what God wants. And Hebrews chapter 1 says so. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the express image of God. That when you hear him, you have heard God. So what do you do? Well, if I'm flipping through the, the Bible and I see Paul writing to Titus, there's a little problematic passage or two where he says, you know, because Titus is in Crete, and it's a rough neighborhood. And he says, you've heard it said that all Cretans are gluttons and liars, and that's true. All of them? First of all, you have to let people use language like we use language. But two... That's still not correct. Jesus still died for them. Jesus still loves them. But Paul is Paul. Patrick's Patrick. I'm going to say stupid things. I'm going to say things that might be racist, might be misogynist. I'll never do that on purpose. But I've said things before and people came up to me and said, are you aware? And I'm going, really? <laughs> Sorry. I don't, and I could say, I'm not racist, I didn't mean it racist, or I might have to say, you know something, maybe I am a little misogynist here. You always have to clean your life up. We're when you look up, see only Jesus. And if you read Jesus' words long enough, hard enough, you're dedicated enough to it, when you read the rest of the gospel, you see him at work. You see him, as we're going to look, with fallen women, with church leadership. You're going to see him with hungry people. You're going to see him with the outcast. The very people who were not allowed inside the temple. Jesus, the house of God, goes to them. He says, let's get you in. Once you see Jesus, there's another thing that also changes. And this will be my last <clears throat> for the day. 
In John 14, there's that passage which, <clears throat> sorry, a lot of our religious neighbors and irreligious neighbors do not care for. <clears throat> this is just me in Tennessee. I'm not dying of COVID. I'm dying of being me in Tennessee. <clears throat> uh, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the Father, but by me. That sounds horrifically restrictive and judgmental, does it not? Unless you know Jesus and looked in the Gospels at everybody, everybody else was judging. And what did Jesus do? He is not telling them, you're in trouble. He's telling them, I gotcha. Don't worry, you don't have to get past the Pharisees to get to see God. You don't have to get past the Sadducees. You don't have to get past the Roman authorities. You don't have to get past the religious establishment. You don't even have to be looked up to highly by your family and your friends. And you don't have to... You're going to come through me. That's the best news anybody could possibly have. And we often read it as if it was restrictive because we're used to reading Jesus through the other bits of the Bible. And that's exactly the wrong way to read Scripture. You are to read the other bits through Jesus. And if you read part of the Bible that you go, wow, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Pay attention. Start looking at the context, the culture, who wrote it. To whom? What kind of language did they use? What were their rules for writing different things? And then realize, you know, if I can't rationalize this, I don't have to get through, and I'm just picking at random. I don't have to get through Ezekiel. I don't have to get through Joshua. I don't have to get, I just have to get through Jesus and read another Jesus story. For he is the express image of God. Come on up if you would, please. He is, he is the one who we can truly say there's something about his name. And that something is the most wonderful, best news we could have ever had.